the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Amongst all of the issues that are troubling Americans today, and it's a laundry list, terrorism, the economy, unemployment, housing, education, you know what I find interesting? That the number one reported concern amongst residents of the state of New Hampshire is substance abuse. Isn't that interesting? Substance abuse, their number one concern, apparently rampant, taking place, uh, particularly amongst kids. And, of course, when we talk about abuse and addictive behavior, uh, it, it comes in a very broad variety of forms. If I talk to you about addiction, I think a lot of our minds immediately have a picture in our mind of either the hobo on the street that has the alcohol addiction problem or maybe the individual that's, that's dealing with drugs and has a drug addiction problem. But growing percentages of Americans, in addition to dealing with sort of the traditional addiction, so to speak, have a variety of other addictions. And it can be as broad as not just illegal drug addiction, but legal or prescription drug addiction. Then you move into other categories. You think about it from a biblical perspective, there are people that are addicted to food, people that can be addicted to spending, gambling, things of that sort. As we talk about the broad level of addiction and addictive behavior in America today, and by the way, 30% of Americans, one out of three of us, struggles with a form of addiction of one sort or another, you would think perhaps the best place for these people to go would be the church, that the church could help them address their addictive behavior. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible talk about all these topics? Well, it certainly does. And yet, sadly, the church seems to be ill-equipped. It, it almost acts as if we're sort of out of sorts on this topic. And so we feel as if, well, if you come to us with an addictive behavior, we immediately need to give you a referral to AA, Narcotics uh, Anonymous, something of that sort. But could we change the face of addiction if we changed our attitudes about what addiction is within the church. To get some insights now, Jonathan Benz joins us. Jonathan is a clinician. He is a certified professional who serves the recovery community. He is the author of a new book called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Craig. What about this observation? From your perspective, is that a fairly legitimate claim to say that largely the church seems to be kind of awkward at dealing with this topic? I think your comments are spot on, and that's certainly my experience. Uh, having uh, been blessed enough to, to, be, to have been raised in a home and a congregation that was remarkably recovery-friendly, when I started going out on my own, and doing uh, both clinical work and work in the church, discovering that while for decades uh, churches have allowed AA and NA meetings to take place in basements and fellowship halls, most of those people who go to those meetings uh, would not grace the doors of the church for any form of worship or, or participation in Christian community. 
And I think that's largely due to the shame and the stigma that oftentimes addiction carries in the church world. But that's odd, because as I delineated, you know, when we think of addiction, let's let's apply the the more broad definition to it than what seems to be kind of the, the, the narrow traditional approach. Most people, if you say addiction and, and do a word association game, will, you know, say alcohol, drugs, things of that sort. And yet, as we know, both from a scriptural standpoint as well as a clinical standpoint, that there can be all kinds of other dangerous, addictive behaviors. I mean, there, there are uh, ministries now that are dedicated to do nothing but helping people, for example, that struggle with uh, sexual addictions uh, or gambling addiction. So it seemed to me that, that given the broad nature of this behavior and the fact that <laughs> the Scripture has an awful lot to say about all of them, that if there's any place where we ought to feel welcome, if it were an, an addict ought to feel welcome, it ought to be within, within the Church. Well, and one would hope. Uh, you know, it's interesting that the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and circuitry. And when the medical community defines addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling, those things are not mentioned. Those are but symptoms of something else that's going on. So we know that there's something that's happening physiologically in the brain of the individual, and I think sometimes that's the part that uh, we in the church community uh, don't get or don't fully understand. Uh, We think that addiction is something that can be prayed away. And while certainly uh, I believe prayer helps in some form of prayer and meditation, we know through science now definitely helps the brain heal, uh, it takes more than just prayer and Bible study for a person to heal and recover. Uh, it takes some form of medical treatment as well. To a certain degree, then, are some of those behaviors, uh, let's take alcohol. Now, we know certainly there's a physiological aspect to that addictive behavior, drugs too. Uh, but, but to a great degree, is that oftentimes, then, as I think you're suggesting, Jonathan, symptomatic of something deeper going on? Uh, oftentimes, uh, addiction experts will say drugs and alcohol are but a symptom, or uh, sexual compulsivity is a symptom of something deeper going on. Now, we, we do know in the case of alcoholism, science tells us that there's a genetic marker for alcoholism. And, you know, we don't quite know if there's a genetic marker for sex addiction yet. Maybe we'll find at some point that there is. But uh, sometimes it's a chicken or egg uh, discussion, you know, which came first. And I often say it doesn't matter whether uh, something of trauma happened that got the person into addiction or they had a genetic marker that led them into addiction. Uh, we we got to treat it. And, uh, and we want to treat more than just the symptoms. We want to treat the deeper issues of the psyche or within the Christian context, we would say the soul or the spirit. Now, the church, of course, would typically look at many of these on that laundry list that we mentioned a moment ago and say that, well, the answer, of course, is Christ, and we can help an individual by leading he or she to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and once they start attending church, going to Bible study, things of this sort, that uh, most naturally then, that that life-changing experience, that encounter with Christ, should then address the underlying issues regarding their addiction. And so once they've been able to then, um, through a process of prayer and counseling, things of this sort, overcome that addiction, that they should be done. In other words, there should be no need for ongoing uh, recovery workshops or things of this sort. We oftentimes even hear something, well, people, you know, that once they get through their addictive behavior, then they get addicted to recovery. Is there something wrong with that approach? Well, I, I think if we take that approach, then we should do the same uh, with other diseases, with other disease states. We certainly would never tell the cancer patient to stop her chemotherapy 
or we would never tell uh, the diabetic to, to stop uh, uh, his insulin or watching his sugar levels. Uh, we know that there are certain disease states that are chronic, and apart from some kind of miraculous uh, touch or, or miracle of science, the person will continue to have to treat that for the rest of their life. Uh, so, uh, you know, some people, uh, they struggle and they say, well, it's a sin to be an alcoholic. Well, if that's the case, then perhaps it's a sin to be a diabetic. Uh, you know, we don't stigmatize people who suffer from other disease states that are often characterized by relapse. Um, yet with addiction, we, it is one of the most undertreated uh, issues in our country and one of the most deadly. And I think the beauty of the church, when the church wakes up to the realization that, yes, we hold a lot of answers for spiritual healing, for psychological healing, when we practice that with good medicine, that a person can really uh, increase their chances of finding a life that is happy, joyous, and free, as the big book says. Uh, I think when we, when we really grab hold of that, we can begin to see greater transformation in people's lives in our congregations and also create an atmosphere where it's easier for people to talk about these issues that maybe they would be ashamed to even confess. Well, and maybe then, too, the approach needs to be with the understanding that an individual that is struggling with an addiction, while we kind of traditionally think it as an individual who's weak, who doesn't have the, the kind of um, will or uh, uh, ability with them to, to push themselves back from the table, the drug, the alcohol, whatever, but rather to recognize that in our fallen condition, we are vulnerable to sin. And it is a day-to-day struggle. I mean, if Paul had to struggle daily to die to the flesh, and I, I think Paul, both in terms of, of his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and the role that he played in the, in the early church, uh, probably a little, a little closer, a little deeper understanding uh, of these principles than just the average Christian out on the street who just casually reads Paul's writings, uh, that if we acknowledge the fact that it's a day-to-day struggle— and that in and of ourselves we are powerless, but through Christ we can overcome this and, and recognize the fact that it's not necessarily just somebody who's got a weak character, but, but rather it's part of the daily struggle to the flesh. Maybe then this sort of stigma that's attached to addictive behavior by the church would be less so, and as a result people would be more willing to find the kind of help they need within both Scripture and the church. I, I would concur, and you know, I would go on to say, uh, I would go on to say what I'm not saying. And what I'm not saying is that there are not uh, what we would call sinful consequences of addiction. So if if the mother, uh, you know, needs a handle of vodka because she's alcoholic, and she drives to the liquor store, and she leaves her child in the hot car in the car seat, uh, and turns the car off uh, to go in to get her alcohol. And, and the child dies, is that a sin? Definitely there are what we would call within the Christian context sinful consequences or definitely harmful behaviors, destructive behavioral patterns. Uh, but, but I think we have to reframe the conversation, as, as you're saying, to say, yes, we know that there are these behaviors, there are, pattern, there are patterns of behaviors, and that really uh, there are principles, spiritual principles in the Scriptures that can help you break free from those destructive behavioral patterns that actually propagate the addictive cycle in your life. 
Jonathan Benz is with us tonight. We're talking about the recovery-minded church, loving and ministering to people with addiction. We'll take a brief time out to come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back with a pretty tight schedule tonight, but we'll see if we can't uh, jump a caller here or two for Jonathan Benz. His new book is called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly released, by the way, by... InterVarsity Press. You can get it at bookstores around the Bay Area, of course, through uh, the recoveryplace.com. Uh, Jonathan, let's talk some specifics. When we talk about ways in which the church mm-hmm. can do a better job, aside from simply saying, let's open up the church basement and allow AA to hold meetings there, what, from your perspective, do you think the body of Christ can be doing that will create the kind of environment that will allow addicts to feel welcome, number one, inside the church, and then what kind of tools that we need to be equipped with in order to really adequately and, and, and appropriately minister to them? Well, I think education is a great place to start. Uh, if, if there are, uh, for example, lay leaders in the congregation who have uh, this kind of passion or who have a particular compassion for people struggling with some kind of addiction, uh, just getting good information uh, and changing the tenor of the conversation within the spiritual community helps. Um, I think being clear that in, in saying and intentional in our message and saying, hey, we want you here. We don't have all the answers. But we're going to help you find the answers that you need, and we're going to journey with you and uh, be on this journey with you to find what you're looking for. And if we can't find it here, we're going to help you find it somewhere. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are looking for uh, who are struggling with addiction. They don't know where to go. And so there are even practical things that congregations can do. One of the most practical things I say is have a list in your foyer or in your lobby of your church that is a list of uh, community resources not just numbers for the, the AA intergroup, but also uh, therapists that you work with or believe in, or treatment centers or different options so that people can know that they don't have to do this on their own. Uh, and uh, oftentimes the best thing we can do is point them in the right direction if we don't have the answer. And, of course, the irony is, based on just some of the, the broad definitions that you've shared with us tonight, I think uh, many pastors would maybe uh, be surprised to find out that many of these so-called addicts are sitting in the church pews right now. Now, they, this may not be the guy that has, you know, the mainline heroin addiction or is, is, you know, diving into a bottle of vodka every night, perhaps not at the extremes, but there's all kinds of, of signs of addictive behavior uh, that can have negative consequences on your, certainly your spiritual health, your relationships with your spouse, your children, etc. So it would seem to me, when you talk about 30% of Americans that deal with one degree of addiction or another, that a good percentage of them are already in the pews, and this kind of addictive behavior is going on. Unaddressed. Well, you know, what, what about the woman who can't go to sleep at night without uh, her two milligram uh, Xanax, which on the streets is called a Xanny bar? Uh, but if you get it from the uh, pharmacist, it's called a two milligram tablet of Xanax. Or the man who has to take his oxycodone uh, to get to work and has to take it throughout the day because of his car wreck and he can't function without the painkillers. Uh, you know, these are very. Uh, powerful narcotics that our doctors prescribe, and oftentimes we have people sitting in our pews who have become dependent on these uh, medications, these narcotic medications, and can't get off and don't know where to turn. Is part of the, the first step here to start de-stigmatizing a lot of this? Because you say addiction, 
and that and that sounds like somebody who's just got this uh, you know deep dark evil ugly secret and yet you know when we start to look at some of these definitions we begin to realize that this is more widespread and more common than we realize yeah i think one of the places the church can start is to uh, really have a, an honest discussion about the difference between guilt and shame. And we like to say, you know, guilt, guilt is when I feel bad about what I did, but shame is when I feel bad about who I am. Now, if we believe what St. Paul wrote, as you said, that we are new creations in Christ, we are not bad. We are, we are good people who are struggling sometimes with some bad things. And so separating identity from behavior is very helpful in destigmatizing addiction. So saying to the person, you know, you might even want to say you're a person with addiction. I work with people who they can't handle that label of addict because it's too self-defeating for them. Other people are okay with it. Uh, you know, say, well, you're a person with alcoholism. You're a person whose drinking has taken over. Separating the behavior from actually who the person is uh, is what the church can help with in terms of the spiritual healing process. Sometimes, of course, the big challenge here is just coming to grips with the face of who we really are. You know, there's that mask that I think we not only put on in, in, in front of others, but sometimes even that, that mask is apparent in the mirror, isn't it? We kind of fool ourselves. Well, uh, we, we like denial, and I think it's human nature. Um, I think it's the ego. I think it's the sin nature of the flesh or whatever you want to call it. We like to think that uh, we're, we're doing okay, and sometimes it's hard to take an honest look in the mirror to say, uh, to really give an honest inventory of, of how, I, how I really am doing. Let's slip a caller or two here uh, real quick before the end of our conversation. We're going to jump over to Oakland and say good evening to Eleanor. Eleanor, come on in with your comment or question for Jonathan Benz. Hi, good evening, gentlemen. And first I'd like to say I really am thankful that you're having this conversation. Um, I just have a comment and maybe a little bit of a question. My comment is that several years ago I started a uh, substance abuse recovery ministry in my church. But first, before we actually got the group started, uh, we actually partnered with uh, our local mental health association. and We actually got uh, professionals to come in and give us an overview about um, the pharmacology of addiction as well as the sociology of addiction. Once we got that information, I was able to talk with my pastor, get him on board with it, and actually um, the members of our recovery group came basically right out of our congregation as we began to do it more and more and months passed by. We were able to even invite some of the family members of people who were uh, in recovery. And we also used Bible, and we also used prayer, and, and um, just a number of different things. So uh, how do you think about uh, churches partnering with other churches and partnering with other um, uh, community uh, mental health associations. Some really good questions, and it sounds like you're doing some really good work there, too. Jonathan, what do you think? Eleanor, I love it. Yes, yes, and yes. That, that was a great approach. Uh, well done in partnering and bringing in good information to the congregation and also working with your pastor. You know, oftentimes we don't deal with things in our churches until there's a felt need. So when there's a crisis, we then respond. 
Uh, and so including the leadership and saying, hey, uh, you know, we're not a, a silo here. We're not a reservoir. We're a river. And uh, we're going to allow the information and the healing to flow. And sometimes we've got to partner with other people to provide optimal healing for our parishioners. And, you know, there's so many organizations out there that you can partner with so that you don't have to sort of do all the heavy lifting and, you know, reinvent the wheels, so to speak. More and more churches, for example, are, are discovering uh, the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, and that has been exploding, perhaps not as fast as we'd love to see, but that's been exploding across the country. So this idea of whether you're partnering with another congregation or, or taking advantage of some of the resources, as uh, Eleanor just mentioned, that, that already exist to say, hey, what can we do to be more effective in our local ministry? And I love the fact that they recognize, gee, we've got some folks right here in our congregation that are already struggling. Thank you. We appreciate the call tonight, Eleanor. Uh, Jonathan, I know we've just kind of scratched the surface here this evening, but for for others out there that are eavesdropping on the conversation, heard what you've had to share, heard what the caller just had to share, where would you recommend they take some, some important first steps? Well, I, I think we have to ask. Now, I always uh, tell people, be careful who you tell your story to. Not everyone has earned the right to hear your story. So when you go for help, make sure that you're going to someone who you are somewhat confident that they can help point you in the right direction if they don't have the answers themselves. So hopefully your your pastor or an elder in the congregation or a lay leader or a therapist or someone in the community, uh, you know, but first you have to ask. Uh, and that, that's what we all have to do. When we're recognizing that we have a problem, we have to ask for help. If we don't ask for help, we'll never uh, get the help that we need, that we so desperately need. And, of course, in terms of resources, I mentioned Celebrate Recovery, and also a copy of Jonathan's new book might be very helpful to you, too. It's called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly published by InterVarsity. You can get it on uh, the web, of course, the usual suspects, Amazon.com, local uh, bookstores, and RecoveryPlace.com. That's RecoveryPlace.com. And our thanks to Jonathan Benz for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know us, the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, 76 million all told. And as that group of Americans reaches retirement age, sometimes even younger, 10,000 a day become eligible for retirement. It's commonly referred to by retirement planning experts as the grain of America. But, of course, with this huge number of Americans that are getting older come all the things that attend older age, disability, illness, just the process of growing older. We are seeing an explosion in home caregiving, and it's for many reasons, many for very good altruistic reasons that families see the value and honor in keeping a loved one at home. We certainly did that with my grandmother when she was not really capable of staying by herself anymore. We never really thought that a so-called rest home, retirement center or such was appropriate because we wanted her to live out her years in her home and with her family. And by the grace of God, we were successful at accomplishing just that. 
still growing numbers in America today that perhaps um, never thought about buying long-term care insurance, mistakenly thought they had it when they didn't, find out that something has happened. It could be uh, the product of growing older. It just could be illness, disease, or an accident that causes a loved one to now be confined at home, and suddenly you find yourself in the position of being a caregiver. And while initially it sounds like you're just simply doing your duty, after a while... The days turn into weeks, turn into months, in some cases turn into years. And as we learn, many of the people that do the caregiving wind up, while certainly doing a great and honorable thing, wind up shortening their own lives. How can we make life a bit better, a bit easier for caregivers, many of whom feel like they have no hope? Joining me now is Peter Rosenberger. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope. And, Peter, great to have you on the program. First, let's kind of put this in context, if you would, by sharing a bit of your own story with your spouse, Gracie. Well, Craig, thank you for having me. And um, it has been a journey for me. I've been doing this now. I'm in my 30th year. I met my wife a couple of years after she had had a horrible accident, and we met at college. She had returned to college, and, you know, I saw that she limped, and I knew that she had had a wreck, and I saw that she had some scars on her lower legs particularly, and uh, but I didn't really have any frame of reference of what it was like to be in a relationship with someone who was hurt. She had already had 20 operations by the time I met her, uh, but we were young and optimistic and, and have both very much in love. And quite truthfully, Craig, she's a babe, you know. And <laughs> so I was just thinking, this this girl's a babe. But then I then I heard her sing, and and I knew that that the soul that was there was just somebody that I wanted to care for for the rest of of our life together. And I had no idea. I was just as dumb as a box of rocks when it came to this sort of thing. And uh, to give you a, a fast forward here, we're up to now that I can count 78 surgeries. Now, that's not all the procedures. That's just surgeries. She gave up both of her legs in the 90s. She's had more than $9 million worth of medical bills. It's probably closer to 10 or 11 now. 60-plus uh, doctors. I stopped counting at 62 years ago, and she's had a dozen more come on since then, I think. So it's just... It just keeps escalating, seven different uh, insurance companies and 12 different hospitals where she's been treated. So this has been a medical nightmare uh, that has never plateaued. We've had seasons where things are okay and it's not quite as dire. We do some fun things together, but then we have just constant grind of, of issues that are going on. My message is all about stewardship for the caregiver, and I have to realize that I didn't do this to my wife. I didn't break her, and I can't unbreak her. I can't fix this, and God has me here for a much different purpose. This challenge, you know, when uh, we exchange vows at the altar, it's uh, in sickness and in health, and we r- kind of rattle through that, and, 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 and we, like the, uh, we like the living and the health part, the uh, sickness and the death do us part portion we really don't give much context to. And, you know, in all fairness, we're young, we're starting out a new life together with uh, our loved ones, so we're probably not thinking about how things may end. And yet, inevitably, we know that everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And and for a lot of people that uh, maybe suddenly there's just that sense of, oh my goodness, I, I don't recall signing up for this. Well, and they did. And, and that's just the bottom line. They did. And now some of the people that are doing this are not doing it for a spouse. They're doing it for uh, a parent or they're doing it for a cousin or a brother or a neighbor. Or there's, just, there, there's all kinds of things. Uh, I, I, I spend a, a good bit of time 
talking with uh, people in the homosexual community that are taking care of somebody that's a, that's a friend, a neighbor, a partner, or whatever, that they didn't have any kind of vows or anything. They're just in this situation. Uh, it, it's, it's everywhere. It's affecting everybody. If you noticed the other day uh, when um, uh, the Denver Broncos won the, won the game, the, that's the first time that the AFC Championship trophy has been accepted by a caregiver because Boland has, uh, uh, the owner has Alzheimer's, and his wife accepted it. It's everywhere, and it's affecting everybody from every kind of walk of life, whether you're married, whether you're, you're just neighbors, whether you're, in, it's, you're living together. It doesn't matter. It's everywhere. If you love somebody, you're going to be a caregiver. If you live long enough, you're probably going to need one. All right, let's talk a bit about uh, this sudden shifting of roles. And I say shifting of roles because oftentimes we're, we're accustomed with, uh, you know, we're raising a family, raising kids, so uh, uh, doing things like fixing meals and bathing them and changing diapers. Well, we get all of that. We also get about the fact that they're eventually going to grow out of that process and be able to care for themselves. Sadly, that's not true in all cases. And when we talk about caregiving, particularly for the elderly, we understand that... The, the real end scenario is probably going to be deterioration, not the hopes of suddenly getting better. And so you you know you begin to sick, get sick at eighty four, and by the time you're ninety, you're healthy as can be again. It doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't. And you don't also have with uh, families with special needs children. Mm. Uh, my brother has a daughter with cerebral palsy. She's been this way uh, from birth, and she's basically like taking care of a two year old, and she's twenty seven. So you're dealing with so many different dynamics in here. And what, I, what I've found, Craig, is this. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, but what I've found is the task of caregiving, uh, whether it's changing diapers, whether it's making meals or bathing and all those kinds of things, those things can be tedious and even unpleasant. But that's not really the heartache of a caregiver, I have found. Most people can kind of punch through those things. The heartache of the caregiver is that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, that this thing could go on for, for so long and that they are losing themselves in this journey. Uh, caregivers suffer from three eyes, Greg. They lose their independence, they lose their identity, and they become isolated. And it's in that craziness that most caregivers start to despair and, and start to, to struggle those late-night conversations with the ceiling fan, and, and you're just wondering, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to be able to kind of get, get on with my life? And it slowly dawns on a lot of caregivers that this is our life. This is it. This is my life. And this has been my life for 30 years. And I've had to learn that I can live a healthier life in this. I could be happy in this, or I can be miserable in this. That, that's my choice. You know, I can't choose in, on the, the painful parts of life. We're going to have pain no matter how it comes. But I can choose on how I'm going to respond to it. And that's what I'm trying to learn as a caregiver each and every day myself. And, and I've also learned that healthy caregivers make better caregivers. And I can't simply throw myself recklessly at taking care of my wife with no regards to my own healthiness. And if I, don't, if, if I do that, I end up compromising the one person standing between her and even further disaster, which is the caregiver. So there, there's a complex set of emotional challenges that go on with this, and that's what I'm speaking to these caregivers that are in the, the valley of the shadow of death, and it is a long valley. But you don't have to be miserable in it. We're as happy or as miserable as we want to be. 
So a lot of it has to do with a matter of perspective and attitude, and I want to talk a bit about that when we come back because, you know, truth be told, this is oftentimes lonely, very stressful. I recall when my godfather went through this with my godmother who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, um, she had a very difficult, very painful last three, three and a half years, and it got to the point in the last year or so of her illness, she did not want to be left alone for even a nanosecond. He was not only her primary caregiver, but she demanded that he be in her side for every second. I mean, he could have a neighbor come over to watch her just to give him an opportunity to go to the store. And as he is driving to the store, the poor thing would be on the telephone, on the cell phone, calling him, wanting to know when he was coming back. So dealing with those realities, how do we go about having the right perspective on this, the right attitude, so that indeed you as a caregiver can survive? We'll come back to that part of the equation. Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, information, by the way, on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Peter Rosenberger, our guest. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. You know, Peter, as you know from your own experience, this can be physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, oftentimes financially draining to the point where a lot of people say, hope, I, I don't see any way out. For me, hope is, and I've heard caregivers at kind of the end of their physical, mental, emotional, relational rope say, for me, the only way out, the only relief is when my spouse passes. How do you go about changing your attitude, your mentality regarding this this challenge that you're facing and and be able to find hope? Well, there, <clears throat> there's several things. Uh, hope, hope for the Caregiver, and that's the name of my, my new book, is not hearts and rainbows and unicorns. It is the conviction that we as caregivers can live a calmer, healthier, and even more joyful life, even while dealing with grim realities. Now, everything in Scripture tells me that that's the case for us in our Christian walk. You know, Paul said this clearly over and over. You know, we see through the glass darkly right now. We don't see what's going on. We don't always know. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It, that's, our, that's our hope. Our hope is not in eliminating all the unpleasant things of this earth. That, that is not our hope. That is beyond my pay grade. Look down at your hands. If you don't see nail prints, this ain't yours to fix. Mm. You know, that's not our hope, is that we're some, somehow going to live a pain-free life. Our hope is knowing that God has spared us as believers through something for, from something far worse than multiple amputations and Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's and, and 30 years' worth of, of chronic pain. He spared us from something far greater than that. And our hope is that as he is working out his purposes in all these things, we can trust him with that knowledge of, that he has saved us. He has rescued us from something far worse than this, and he is building this thing in a way that we just can't see. He's weaving his redemption through stuff that we just can't understand. And that's what gives us a new perspective so that we can look at the things in our life with trials and knowing that his perfect will is being worked out. And, and Romans 8.28 comes into play here. You know, for I know these things. He, Paul didn't say, for I'm, I'm guessing. He said, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's our confidence. So when we're looking at somebody who we're having to, we can't reach anymore because they're impaired through pharmaceuticals or dementia or whatever, 
we can love them tapped in because we're tapped into the inexhaustible love of God through Christ. And you said before we went to the break, you know, that, that struggle that we have that when, when they won't let go and, and the, 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 your godfather was trying to go to the grocery store and, and, and your godmother kept calling. This is what I want to tell my fellow caregivers. They're going to do stuff that, that's going to absolutely drive us up the wall sometimes. They're not doing it to us. They're just doing it. And we don't have to take everything so personally. They don't want to be sick. They don't want to deal with dementia. They don't want to deal with chronic pain. They don't want to be doing all this stuff. We just happen to be the closest person to them. But we can learn to let some of that go and not take it all personally. You know, what is it Mother Teresa once said? You know, bless you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege of serving you in your many horrible disguises. Mm. And, and, you know, you can, you can be all bent out of shape about this. But my goal for caregivers is that when we do stand at a grave, and one day, most likely, we will. And that's the goal, by the way, is that for a caregiver to stand in the grave, not be in the grave first. And that's a hard thing to say, but that's the reality. But that we stand there without clenched fists, without fists that are clenched at, at our loved one, at families and friends that didn't maybe help the way we wanted them to, at, at, at ourselves for what we could have, would have, should have done, or even at God, that we can learn to live peacefully with these things. Even if your loved one is not dealing with all this stuff, you're not living a trouble-free life. Everybody's got some, something going on. This is just a little bit more accelerated, and it requires us to, to bend our will into the will of God more and faster than we probably would otherwise. Is part of this, Peter, sort of the, the natural flesh inclination to push back against um, – this aspect of the reality of life. I, I, I often, when, when there's been debates over things like, uh, oh, we want to legalize, uh, say, uh, physician-assisted suicide, because we, we refer to this as death with dignity. And I, and I often think to myself, well, wait a minute, since when is death dignified? Uh, the deterioration of our body and going through pain and agony and all of that stuff, there's nothing dignified about that. Why don't we focus on living, living with dignity? And death, sadly, is a product of man's sin nature. It's our fallen condition. Is it, is it helpful for the caregiver to be reminded of that, or are we just kind of pushing back against the reality of the grave and maybe our own sense of, of mortality? Well, I think what happens is, is we, we, are, we are screaming out for relief. And so we, we rush to things like, uh, you know, euthanizing, things like that, and, and so forth. We're just screaming out for relief. And, and I, I, I've taken a different path. I mean, again, I've, I've been doing this for, for three decades. I've been doing it since the first Cold War. <laughs> but I, you, you learn to accept that maybe relief is not the thing that we're supposed to be seeking so much, is learning to trust God in this. And we place our scared hand into his scarred hand and learn to see, okay, well, how do I deal with this today? See, nobody can do this for a lifetime, Craig, but anybody can do it for 24 hours. And that's really kind of how we as caregivers have to learn to live. You can only start screaming and crying and praying and, and God bail me out of this, God bail me out of this, God get me out of this, or the government get me out of this, somebody get me out of this. You can only do that for so long before that becomes kind of tedious. And you have to learn to say, okay, how do I be sustained in this. And your prayer changes. God, sustain me in this. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. So instead of focusing on our suffering, focus instead on our serving. Well, exactly. And, and, and focus on what God is doing in the midst of these things. You know, you go back and look at Solzhenitsyn after he got out of the Russian prison, and he said, you know, bless you prison for the change you've made in my life. 
I mean, something happened to him in that prison. Corey Ten Boone, you know, uh, I could just go down the list of, of people, Victor Frankl and all these other people who experienced life on a much greater level in the midst of some very, very harsh, harsh thing. Nelson Mandela, he went into prison almost as a terrorist and came out a statesman. And there's a point where we walk through these suffering, we walk through these bleak things, but if we are willing to, to go inward and to be changed in a healthy direction through this thing, we find that we, we can experience a, a quality of life that we thought was unattainable. There's beauty everywhere. There's excitement everywhere. There's joy everywhere. But it, sometimes we allow these things to obfuscate our view because this does affect us, like you said, our health, our emotions, our lifestyle, our profession, our money. Everything about this is affected. But is that necessarily a bad thing, and is it causing us to act like jerks? See, I, I'm from the mindset that that this does not cause character defects. It amplifies what's already there, mm. and it gives us an opportunity to deal with this in a healthy manner if we so choose. And the question then becomes, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, it's all about stewardship. How can I be the best steward for my wife? How can I be the best steward for me? What is the best choice for the unit? And as your godfather found out, that sometimes he had to get away. And he has to recognize that it's more important for him to have moments of respite and healthiness, and he's just going to have to not answer the phone so that he can be a healthy person. She needs him healthy, and people that are in pain or people that are diseased or whatever, impaired, they can't always see that. And so it's up to the caregiver to make those unilateral decisions without guilt, recognizing that they're, doing, they're loving them better when they're becoming healthier as an individual. And, of course, the irony is we, we also sometimes, I think, Peter, focus on our inconvenience, the difficulty, the trial that we are facing, and we perhaps, as close as we are to the situation, uh, cause our, our, our perspective to become very distant. And by that I mean we forget about the fact that that individual who was in the bed doesn't want to be there, didn't ask for this, doesn't prefer this, doesn't see this as a better option, would much rather be up and about and living life as opposed to being bedridden or dependent upon another person to do everything from take them to the bathroom, to change their diapers, to shower them, feed them, shave them, all of that. Um, we sometimes forget that. And, and to remember that when they do on occasions lash out, when they do get upset, it's only at the closest person because they're really looking at their circumstance and their situation. And maybe because we're, we're so close, we lose eyesight of that. It's very easy to do it. That's where the flashpoints come as a caregiver. And, you know, when I get in those points, I, I, it, it's hard to push a wheelchair with clenched fist. Mm -hmm. I've tried it. It doesn't work. <laughs> you, can't be, you can't be that hacked off and try to push a wheelchair. And, and you know, I can't, if I'm going to change a dressing on my wife, I'd rather do it with, with tears on my cheek than with my teeth grinding, you know? And I think it helps for me to remember how much Christ condescends to me. And if I keep that in perspective, I usually can navigate through these, these quagmires and these landmines a little bit easier. Um, but when I, when I get so wrapped up in my own self, that's when it's hard. But, but there, there are tools and strategies that we as caregivers, that's what we're all about at Caregivers with Hope, is helping those caregivers learn to how to navigate these things so you don't set off those, those emotional landmines that seem to go off in these, in these high crisis moments. And I want to encourage listeners, by the way, Peter, on the heels of that exhortation, to take advantage of the website. There's a lot of great resources there. The big message, as you're hearing tonight, is you're not alone. 
Um, yes, it could be worse than this, so be grateful in what you have. It's a matter of your attitude, your perspective, and and as Peter, I think, very aptly mentioned, uh, uh, people don't turn nasty and cruel because they're dealing with someone that is in the important circumstance of needing, requiring a caregiver. It, it rather amplifies that pre-existing character flaw. And so to learn how to examine this through the magnifying glass of Scripture and then get the right attitude, the right perspective from a biblical viewpoint, from Christ's viewpoint, can be all the difference, can be very freeing for you. Information again on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. That's caregiverswithhope.com. And our thanks to Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, for being with us tonight on Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.